If I had courage, my sermon today would be about the mystical interpretations of fishing naked. <laughs> but that's another sermon. I'll save that for down the road. In the New Testament, in the book of Hebrews, there is a teaching from that author. It says, be careful how you treat the stranger. For in doing so, some of you have entertained angels unawares. So for 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus appears to his disciples and others. And he walked his disciples through the Hebrew scriptures again. He had Bible study with them. He was trying to give them some clarity about who he was and what it was they were supposed to do next. Now surely this was disorienting, particularly at first. Jesus would appear and then vanish. And then on more than one occasion, they didn't recognize who he was. They didn't recognize him. At the tomb, the women on that first day thought he was the gardener. And in the wake of their, their trauma and their grief, I, I understand that. That same day, it wasn't his disciples, but people were sort of adjacent to him, followers of Jesus, were walking to the city of Emmaus, seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus joined them on the road, and he didn't recognize him. And now in this moment, Peter and his disciples are fishing, and this has been in the wake of Jesus appearing and again teaching them, and Peter, fishing naked, doesn't recognize the voice of Jesus from a distance. Ooh. I have a new computer today. There we go. Okay. Doesn't recognize Jesus. If, Je if Jesus' disciples cannot recognize him, then what hope is there for any of us? Now, all of you, I, I venture a guess, have an image of Jesus that you carry with you. You have a mental picture of his face, of what he looks like. And you have accrued this somewhere along the way. For some of you who grew up here at St. Paul's, it may, it may very well be these stained glass windows that we look at in a devotional way every day. That stained glass window on your right, with Jesus' eyes looking upward towards heaven, I confess that some days I look at it and I feel like instead he's rolling his eyes at me. <laughs> in fact, when Dean Churchwell first came to St. Paul's, I mean like in the first few days, and we were chatting in this space, she made that same joke to me, and I said that she and I were going to be lifelong friends. I went on a choir trip with some Cassidy students this past weekend, and I was talking with one of the parents who was asking me about what I was doing today, and I was talking about this sermon. And so I asked her where she had picked up sort of her primary mental image of Jesus as a child. She grew up in the Church of England in London. Well, she described to me a painting that hung in the church there, and it took me really no time at all to retrieve it on my phone. I could tell it was a picture uh, the, by the listening of the way she described Jesus. The painting she was talking about was the head of Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, by the painter Warner Salmon. There's another painting that probably you've seen. Jesus is knocking at the door, and there's a, the shadows sort of cast. It's like a heart that the door that Jesus is knocking on. He's knocking on the door of our heart. And so I pulled it up on my phone. I said, is that, is that the guy? And she said, that's him. That's Jesus. For me growing up, it was the work of artist Francis Hook. Now, you may not recognize the artist's name, but I guarantee you 
you would recognize her work, the way she images and presents Jesus. A lot of her paintings, it's Jesus with children, and in her paintings, the children are clearly from a modern setting. But that's the Jesus that I carried with me for so long. When a, a filmmaker makes a film about Jesus, casting directors have to make decisions about what he looks like. But more importantly, those directors, the film writers, the screenwriters, the actor, they have to collaborate to try to make decisions about his temperament. Not what he looked like, but who was he? Some directors don't want to make Jesus too dour, and so they overshoot it, and Jesus becomes kind of this happy, clappy, you know, sort of happy guy all of the time. Franco Zeffirelli, in his miniseries in the 1970s, Split the Difference, uh, the actor is Robert Powell, who plays Jesus. In the first part of the movie, when Jesus is teaching, there's almost this low level of sort of sass and sarcasm that Jesus has when he's interacting, especially with the religious leaders. And by contrast, he has this intense compassion when he is healing someone or working with the average person on the street. But then in the latter part of the film, the second half, when he turns his face towards Jerusalem to face his death, to face the cross, to atone for our sins, Jesus, the actor, the, the decisions they made, he becomes almost ethereal, otherworldly. But why does this matter for you and for me? I venture that we want our lives to be shaped by the living and resurrected God. And so for this to be possible, we need to have some internal source to pull from. To say it more practically, to consult with. Charles Sheldon, late 19th century, wrote a book called In His Steps, which takes place in a railroad town, in the fictional town of Raymond, located somewhere in the Rust Belt. The main character is the Reverend Henry Maxwell. He's pastor of the first church of Raymond. And in the, the conceit of the novel is he, changes, he challenges his congregation <coughs> to not do anything for a whole year without first asking the question, do you guys know? What would Jesus do? And so this creates all sort of like, you know, tangled, you know, situations for the people in the story. In the late 80s and the 90s, the novel had a revival of sorts in the evangelical world, and Christians started wearing the WWJD bracelet. What would Jesus do? The premise was fair enough, and it's practical. Asking the question would probably put most of us in a better situation spiritually than we often may be. But I think that's the challenge, is knowing how to answer the question. It isn't always easy. You, you have to already have in place, or developing, some profound substantive sense, not just of what Jesus looks like in your mind, but what he cares about. And then translating that from a first century Palestine to a 21st century requires an ethical and a spiritual understanding of Jesus. This takes work. This isn't always easy. By the way, there have been some pretty humorous attempts at alternative meanings for WWJD. What would Jesus dance is one. What would Jesus drink? Uh, just yesterday in the drive-thru, uh, 
at Golden Chick, there was a bumper sticker that read, WWSD, what would Scooby do? <laughs> but if you didn't know about this earlier phenomenon in Christian culture, that wouldn't be funny to you. <clears throat> and then one time, I saw one entirely different acrostic on a bracelet. Instead of WWJD, it was J-W-P-N-H-G-H-I-T-S-I-T-F-P, which stands for Jesus would probably not have gotten himself into this situation in the first place. <laughs> Rachel Held Evans, she was a devotional writer, sort of a middleweight theologian. She was very enmeshed in our Episcopal world. In fact, she was invited here to St. Paul's a few years ago as part of the Bishop's Lecture Series. She died a few years ago, quite unexpectedly young. She had the flu, and it turned tragic when she had an allergic reaction to the antibiotics. Now, her spiritual journey was not too unlike many of ours. She moved from the what felt like sort of a harmful fundamentalism in the evangelical world to our Episcopal family. She, she helped a lot of us reimagine what a Jesus who is forgiving and compassionate looks like, that compassion would be his primary instinct and not judgment. In a conversation that she had with author Preston Sprinkle about Jesus' ethic, she talked about his ethic of nonviolence and love for your enemy. And Rachel, she says that the apostles too asked the question, what would Jesus do? Only they answered it very differently than most of us do when we ask that question. The apostles didn't appeal to Jesus' life to encourage believers to read their Bibles. The Bible didn't exist at that time. To do their devotionals or to abstain from things like sexual temptation. All of those are virtuous things. Instead, she said, they pervasively and unashamedly drew upon Jesus' nonviolent response to evil as a model for believers to follow. Rachel said that the New Testament is ubiquitously clear. Don't retaliate with evil for evil. Do good to those who hate you. Embrace your enemy with a cross-shaped, unyielding, divine love. But she continues, what do you think? Should nonviolence factor into our consideration of what Jesus would do? And if yes, then why don't we do that? What are the obstacles that we face in the small things and the big things that keep us from this more consistent Christian Jesus ethic? I've been trying of late to reorient my mental picture of Jesus. Some of you know how much of a fanboy I am of the drama The Chosen. This is a drama about Jesus' life that's only available online. If you have a smart TV, you can get your internet to show it through the TV. But the man in this who plays Jesus, his name is Jonathan Rumi, and the director of the series, Dallas Jenkins, they, again, have to make these decisions about who Jesus is. And I think the decisions they're making are beautiful. Jesus in this series is funny. Not all the time. But mixed in with his profundity and seriousness, he's kind of a goofball. And I like it. It seems true to me in ways that maybe other filmmakers were afraid to risk with Jesus. 
Father Chris Yoder, who is a friend of mine, and he is the rector at All Souls Episcopal, our sister church here. <coughs> he recently gave me a book for my ethics class. thought maybe I could use it. It's written by Dr. Samuel Wells, who's vicar at St. Martin in the Fields Anglican Church in Trafalgar Square in London. The two of them studied together at Duke. And Wells' book is called Improvisation, the Drama of Christian Ethics. Now, for any of you who have done improvisation in drama class in high school or in college, uh, then you'll know that improv is not really an anything-goes exercise. Rather, improv is a form of live theater, yes, where you don't know exactly what's going to happen, but the plot and the characters and the dialogue, they're sort of made up in the moment. But for improvisers, they first take a suggestion from the audience, and then they draw on some other source of inspiration to get that started. And it's that suggestion that becomes the framework for all of their decisions from then on. Wells' book suggests that this is one way to build our life's ethic, Jesus being the framing suggestion for us moving forward day to day. So what am I saying? Get acquainted with Jesus. For all the different approaches you could to build a spiritual life, at minimum, spend daily, as best as you can, reading and understanding the way Jesus saw the world and interacted in the world. And then, improvise. Take the suggestion, the framing suggestion of Jesus as he shouts at you from the shore. And in those moments, when he says, feed my sheep, you'll know what he's talking about. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.